for this week's Spotlight interview, I'm speaking with Laura Tingle, political editor of the Australian Financial Review, who's just put out a new book, or at least a reprinted book, called In Search of Good Government, Great Expectations and Political Amnesia. Well, Laura, uh, the thing that comes out of your book, really, uh, above all, it seems to me, is this sense of a loss of continuity in government, constant breaks, loss of memory. When do you think that began? You talk about three decades. Is that about right? Uh, The breaks, I suppose, yeah, you can date them from then in the sense that if you think about the institutional breaks, that was when we were breaking up all the sort of policy consensus and we were breaking up the institutions that ran government, not just uh, politics, of course, but the public service, the way the media reported on these things. So, yeah, I guess it goes back that long, but it's become a process that's just got faster and faster. I think when you don't have a consensus around the way you do things, it becomes much easier to not value the continuity of policy or to think about it because people forget what the policy was a couple of years ago. And so therefore they don't, one, they don't remember it, but two, they don't actually value the fact that there's a lot to be said for trying to continue it. You spend a lot of time in the book talking about the public service and how it's in a sense broken down. Talk to us a little about how that's happened. And it seems to be there's this number of things that have contributed to it. One of them being private sector management techniques, but also they've been politicised in ways that you describe. Yeah, they have been politicised in the sense that the public service is now just one source of advice. So they have to compete with a lot of other people. The sort of sense of the public service ruling supreme went. Now, there's a lot to be said for doing that, but I think that competition, the fact that public servants could be very easily sacked or sidelined, that the government of the day didn't rely on them for advice, really changed the way it worked. But I suppose in the essay, what I've tried to really concentrate on is not so much that frontline sense of which people talk about a lot, which is frank and fearless advice being compromised and things. It's about the structural reasons why that's changed. You mentioned private sector management techniques, and certainly if you talk to public service gathering these days, it's all full of PowerPoints and KPIs and all those sorts of things. But uh, I think the contracting out of a lot of government services has been really important in this. Now, you can say that contracting out is a great thing that might deliver cheaper services. I have to say, after all of this period of time, I'm not persuaded that it is necessarily cheaper. But what it means is, if you think about what a public servant does on any given day, a lot of them become managers of contracts rather than uh, administrators of services. So, And you talk, uh, about you, know, the, you talk about something called issues management too, which is, uh, seems to oh, be yeah. a day-to-day thing. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, issues management, Treasury's very into issues management now. Basically, they're taking on the mindset of the government of the day, which is how do we keep an issue under control? How do we stop it being an issue of controversy? And therefore, um, I think that's a bit of a process of politicisation as well, because instead of saying, well, what's the best policy outcome for the average punters here, for the community as a whole, you're thinking about things in terms of managing the issue for the government. And huge numbers of resources are devoted to this. I don't think we've much to show for it, but massive numbers of people are employed in this sort of game now in the public service. But that seems to be a more a political activity than policy. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. As I say, they're basically embracing the mindset of the government in going, how do we keep this sort of under control uh, as a public relations exercise? And you talk about how there used to be huge battles within the public service over policy, which talk about the good old days. They don't seem to do that anymore. The battles are kind of done somewhere else. Or in fact, you wonder whether there are actually battles about policy much anymore apart from that aren't to do with ideology. Well, I think that's right. And if you think about the way things have happened, a lot of the rules about the details of policies used to be conducted at the bureaucratic level. I mean, it was also a reflection of the fact that things happened at a much slower pace, I suppose, but they used to be fought out at the bureaucratic level. Now they tend to be fought out at the cabinet level. And if they aren't successful, you see a lot more battles fought out in the parliament. Now, that's fine. You know, that's what the parliament is there for, to resolve our differences. But I suppose one of the things in looking anew at this issue just in the last few months, having spent time in Norway and looking at what's happening in New Zealand as examples, you actually see the process going another step further, which is that because minority government in those places is now a standard thing, you actually see a lot of these debates being fought out or you know discussed in a civil way, one or the other, amongst the political parties before they form a government, so that you actually have a debate coming right at the end of what would be our process. But I don't think we as a country are sort of yet used to the idea of minority government. We find it completely appalling and atrocious idea which suggests uncertainty, but I would have said we had a fair bit of that anyway. Well, in fact, just to skip to the conclusion of your book, if there is such a thing, you seem to yearn for minority government in Australia and that that may be a solution to our political problems. I don't think I yearn for it. I suppose I've thrown it up as a way of thinking differently about this because my argument would be that the two major parties have become so incapable, it seems, of doing anything other than throwing rocks at each other in a very ideological sort of way. So you sort of say, well, what's the outcome for that? And I would say, well, the way it's going at the moment, the two major parties are destroying themselves and enabling the minor parties to get a really big foothold. Now, that might not be an all bad thing. You know, it's just different from what we're used to. But if it is the case, it's sort of interesting to say, well, in other countries that are quite similar to ours, it can actually work. But I suppose what I'm really saying to the major parties is, guys, stop and think about this a little bit. Who are you actually damaging here? And I think, in fact, in the last few weeks even, or even in the last few days in the lead up to the federal budget, we're sort of seeing some signs of the government at least or some of the sort of smarter ministers actually understanding that. And uh, I've got Simon Birmingham in mind in particular on this in the way he's been conducting the school funding debate, which is that every time somebody's thrown a ideological rock at him, he's just very calmly come back, very well briefed on all the figures and facts involved in the case. And it's reduced the temperature of the debate, but it also allows it to be conducted in a fairly civilised way. In fact, you point out that um, not only on this subject has the Coalition rated the Labor's policy, they've rated the Labor's spokesperson on the <laughs> issue, which is Mr Gonski. They have, they have, and they, they didn't even have to tie him up, <laughs> which right. I think is probably... I they've think kidnapped probably him, that's great. That's, that's right. Uh, that's very funny. No, but, uh, no, he's, he's a, I don't know, he's, he's, what's the Stockholm Syndrome or something, but uh, I think that's also a reflection of the fact that David Gonski knows better than anybody else that whatever their original intentions, what Labor offered as their version of Gonski had very little to do with what the Gonski report had originally recommended. 
I mean, just on the subject of the problems of the major parties, it's interesting we're talking at the end of the French election where the major parties are out of it and two mm. minor parties fought it out in the second round. And obviously, and obviously this new party that kind of came from absolutely nowhere has won, which do you think there's a, a salutary lesson for our major parties in that? I think there's an absolutely salutary lesson for uh, major parties in Macron's victory and uh, in Le Pen's rise to being the official opposition, as she calls herself. And I think one of the really interesting things, which there hasn't been a lot of focus on yet, is what Macron's talking about for the French parliament and for the French government. I mean, he's talking about the established parties only being a part of the way he runs the government. He wants the so-called civil society to come in and take a very large slab of the running of the government. This is going to be a fascinating exercise, I think, Alan. It certainly is. And I mean, I wrote this morning in The Australian that the French election was a bit like Nick Xenophon versus Pauline Hanson, <laughs> which, uh, yeah. which mm, Nick's, uh, yes. Nick Xenophon's won. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. just in the context of the budget that's coming up, one of the interesting themes that you draw out in the book is the sort of conflict, in a way, between Australia's view of itself as being easygoing and mm. um, this sense of anger that um, Amanda Vanstone brings out and talks about mm. in your book about how there's mm. there's deep-seated anger and there's this mm. kind of um, – uh, as a result of unmet expectations, I guess. And mm. I mean, how do you think we are going in meeting expectations now and sort of dealing with that anger? Yeah. Well – I sort of originally sort of wrote about this issue in 2012, you know, this sort of sense of anger and, you know, that we had these sort of disappointed expectations of what government could do for us, this sense of entitlement that we were entitled to all sorts of largesse, particularly after the Howard years. And to me, everything that's happened since then has really reaffirmed that and crystallised it. And you could sort of say this is exactly what's been happening in politics globally ever since. And I think uh, in the context of this budget, that's what's so fascinating about where Malcolm Turnbull and his government is going. Now, you can sort of see what the budget's going to be about as a return to the centre, sort of a, a blind panic that, you know, they've got to sort of nail everything down because they think they're going to lose, whatever. But the net result of it is, is if you listen to the message of the government right now, what they're saying is, yes, we hear that you think government should fix things for you, that we have a really important role, particularly at a time of low wages growth, that you really value services like Medicare, like education. Yes, we're going to cut some money off them, but we hear you loud and clear. We want this to work. We think there's a really central role for government. Now, this is quite a revolutionary message in a way against the subliminal message of the last 30 years, which is Government is bad. We've got to get out of the way. Private sector always does things better. You know, we should spend less. You know, blah 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 blah. I think it's a real turning point or swing point in the pendulum of our shifting views of the role of government. But it goes to this very issue that, and I argue in the essay that it goes right back to the first fleet. Really, that despite our view of ourselves as rugged individuals and happy-go-lucky, we have always had this massive state paternalism at work in Australia and we just don't recognise it and we feel much more comfortable when, you know, we might complain about the government, but we, we actually like them to sort of sort it out for us. But you're suggesting that the coalition has kind of embraced that now, having been through so many yeah. so many years, decades even, of rejecting that. Yeah. Well, they're, they're embracing it, Labor's embracing it, and I think Without a doubt, it's the absolute clear message of the strategy behind this budget. 
you know, talking to people within the government over the last four to six weeks. They've done a lot of research on this. They've got a lot of facts and figures all ready to go about how important these things are in a monetary sense for voters at a time when wages aren't growing. The idea that those basic provision of services are so much more important in people's minds when they're feeling financially threatened. And I think that it's part of the political strategy. And I think it's also probably just realistically a sort of a reflection of the fact that the sort of debt and deficit disaster, you know, always calling on a crisis, which both sides have done on a range of issues over the last 30 years, it's just sort of clapped out as a political model. And you've got to actually do it a bit differently. As you point out through a memorable phrase in the book, anarchy rolls through the coalition. I mean, the coalition for the last few years has been at war with its, within itself. How will this shift play within the coalition? Well, a couple of things. I mean, uh, somebody points out that essentially the split in the coalition now is on social policy rather than economic policy. I think the way it plays out is if this is a successful budget, and there are reasons to believe it, probably looking pretty successful. Do we mean success in the do we mean success in the way it's received politically? That's right. Po- yeah. Politically successful in the way it's received, the fact that a lot of the budget measures will probably get through reasonably easily so that that sense of chaos and uncertainty isn't as great. If that helps boost the confidence of the government brackets, you know, polling numbers, um, that obviously improves the authority of the prime minister. That starts to change the internal dynamics. The Conservatives have splintered spectacularly and they're a very fractured bunch at the moment. I think we've got to the point where every time Tony Abbott gets up now, he should probably go for a bit more scarcity value. I think he's a much more diminished figure. There isn't an alternative candidate at this stage who can promise the coalition a better election outcome than Malcolm Turnbull. So I think it's going to force them all to sort of rethink exactly how they play their issues. Having dealt with issues like this banking inquiry, which looks suspiciously like the Royal Commission, that takes a lot of the thunder and heat out of a lot of the antagonism that the Nationals have had to Malcolm Turnbull. All of those factors just once again give him the prospect, at least, of increasing his internal authority. One of the consequences of what you're talking about, it seems to me, is that the budget this year is a bit of a box-ticking exercise, you know, infrastructure, tick, housing, tick, terrorism, tick with the money going to the federal police, education, tick, and so on, um, which I suppose to some extent that's what all budgets are. But you also point out that tax policy and tax reform is one of the best ways to describe the loss of continuity that's occurred, but that doesn't seem to be a box that's getting ticked this year. Well, there's no money for it, frankly. And, I mean, I think they're going to have to come back to it. I mean, it'll be seriously thinking that the coalition can go to the next election campaign on a platform of saying, let's give tax cuts to really big companies. I mean, it just doesn't work. I think that the political task of this budget was, okay, it's the first budget after Malcolm Turnbull wins his own uh, mandate, uh, however weak that mandate might have been. It's the one where he has to basically change people's expectations about him and the government. As you say, it's a box-ticking exercise, but it's one where one of the biggest boxes is we're getting rid of the uh, legacy of 2014 and Tony Abbott. We've got a completely different set of policies. 
And as we discussed earlier, it's about a changing role for the role of government. I think the tax reform debate had become so bogged down as one which was sort of seen in ideological terms and was sort of like tax first, thinking about services second, which people just weren't interested in, frankly. Because wages growth is low, bracket creep where people are being forced into high tax brackets is happening much slower than you might otherwise think. I think that's a debate for another year and it's one where probably the passage of time will make it easier to reframe that given that in 2015 there were so many different issues loaded into the tax reform debate that it was almost impossible for anybody to proceed. Everybody had already spent the GST revenue from an increase four or five times over and it was a completely incoherent discussion. I suppose the other problem is that nobody, well, I don't think anyone really believes anymore the growth dividend that comes from cutting company tax. Yeah, I think that has a fairly large problem persuading anybody about that, whatever the models say. You know, I think uh, nobody's all that clear about that. And I don't think that's even a short-term thing. And that goes back to all these crises and disasters and all that sort of rhetoric. I mean, I know, you know going back 30 years as an economics correspondent, you know, the number of times you'd write up some Productivity Commission report which would say, you know, if we just lash ourselves much harder, everybody will be $45 richer next week. And nobody can see the benefits of that. Now, the benefits are there, but nobody even knows what the counterfactual is going to be in these cases. So they just presume that, you know, they haven't necessarily got any uh, dividend from all of these sorts of changes. So I think the entire sort of preparedness to believe governments that everything would be better if you just change things is pretty limited and that extends to the tax debate as well. So just finally, Laura, what are you going to be looking for in the budget tomorrow? Well, I suppose I'm going to be looking for, one, the coherence of all of these different messages. Whether I mean, political competence is something that uh, people have challenged Malcolm Turnbull on. And as I said, Simon Birmingham has sort of shown the path through that you can actually put forward some really complex policy positions and make them sing, in, at least in the short term. So I'll be looking for whether the housing affordability package stacks up in the same sort of way. And it's very boring, but I'll be looking at how the numbers stack up because uh, we still need to know how the government sells this in a fiscally credible way. Great to talk to you, Laura, as always. Thanks very much. Thanks, Alan. I've been speaking with Laura Tingle, political editor of the Australian Financial Review.